Hey guys, just a quick one before today's episode to let you know that the most anabolic wrist straps will be available for you to purchase in the next three or four weeks. That is right there. It's going to be personalized. Give it the beans wrist straps available to buy on the website. So please continue to check the Instagram page for when these will go on sale and enjoy today's episode. Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Now, my guest today has been on the podcast before. It's been over 13 months. Um, it is one of the Pride Lions, or one of the one of the Pride members of the Muscle Mentor Pride, should I say, Mr. Luke Hoffman. How are we doing? Yeah, good, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on. I'm always, I'm always kind of thinking, I'm sure everyone else is, of who's the alpha in the Muscle Mentor's Pride, but would you say it's more of a, a, a collab or, or who's the alpha? Yeah, I mean, it depends on which area of the business you make. <laughs> you know, yeah, we we like, but I think I think we're we're pretty much a a cohesive unit. I wouldn't say there's a true alpha or anything. We I, all have our strengths and weaknesses. I would say that you're pro- you're the most like across the board like fundamental cohesive unit in the fitness industry today. Not only in regards to education, but you know, you guys are pretty jacked as well. Well, James was pretty jacked before. It's maybe not not mate, pretty jacked still. But yeah, he he I is. Think, I think think people don't realise with James is he's six seven, and you know, and he's you know, he's he's still in pretty good shape. Yeah, like, he he really is. But you know what? I'm sure there's some listeners that are kind of wondering who who's this Luke guy and who are the muscle mentors and whatnot. So for those that maybe are living under a rock or they're total beginners could you just give us a, a little bit of a summary of who you are what you guys are about and then and then maybe just a little synopsis of what have you been up to the past 13 months oh, it's been a while <laughs> um, so no yeah so we're uh, well I'm Luke part of the Muscle Mentors so Muscle Mentors was founded by uh, Callum Raystrick and I You, a lot of people probably know Cal um, and um and we are a collection of coaches and um, and educators in the fitness industry. So we have essentially, I mean, it started off mostly as a coaching venture um, with between just Cal and I, and we also alongside a podcast, which was kind of the most our educational out, outlet at that point. Um, and then as that grew and there was the demand to go and start doing seminars, which was kind of always the goal. Um, so we kind of brought in an educational side to the business, um, which is essentially aimed at giving coaches and personal trainers an insight into how we do things. And it's kind of looking at some of the more relevant, but less well understood areas of science and the coaching practice so we're looking at exercise mechanics digestion sleep hypertrophy female physiology kind of all the areas that we want to consider when we're dealing with clients when we want to when we're putting forces through people's bodies and in in the gym um when we're kind of giving advice outside of training and nutrition realms but then also the nutrition realm itself as well and kind of not so much a blueprint so i don't think we'll ever I spoke about this yesterday with someone. I don't think we'll ever give like a standardized way of doing things because it gets too risky and then you start losing, you know, you start blurring the line with 
with the fact that we are dealing with individuals all the time. So we teach more of a thought process. It's kind of giving people an understanding of all these areas and then a thought process to how they can go away and apply them to an individual to get the best results possible within their physique and within their their life and enjoyment of the process of, of coaching and things like that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we, we're, that's essentially what we do. We kind of teach people how we feel is like the, what we feel is the best way of going about the whole coaching thing and personal training thing, you know, yeah. being an exercise professional. Um, and, um, you know, and it's all pretty heavily informed by science. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's the, the term evidence-based gets banded about a fair bit. I'd say it's it's pretty evidence based, and when you get into the realms of of exercise mechanics, you could say it's pretty mathematically such physics based. Yeah, but, <laughs> but the, the thing is, everything that you guys preach and you you talk about, it, I I've implemented a lot of that in my own training, as with my clients, and I'm sure many coaches have done over the UK, and it works. It really yeah. it really does, and I think that anyone. That doesn't that, that bashes it just doesn't understand it and, and I would say that you, you know years and years ago I was kind of naive and didn't understand things like that and brushed them off but then the minute that you know I've worked with James before I've worked with Cal I've sat I've listened to them lecture I've listened to yourself lecture when you sit and you just you, you break it down you guys break it down really well um it, it just it all makes sense and I think the only like to, to solidify it it's when you go apply it and you go holy shit I've never felt a burn in my del, my, you know, my medial deli like that before, or my, my, my quads or my glutes and whatnot, um, and and it's awesome, and um, I'm sure. I mean, I've worked with James, I've worked with Cal, I've still got to work with you. you. You'll be on the list at some point after our prep next year, no doubt. Um, and if you've had any clients hound you before with questions, I'll be the worst one. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. That's the thing. I, I always welcome the questions because I think that's that kind of keeps me on my toes. But then it's it's like the age old saying. I don't know if it's a saying really, but I know Luke Lehman used to say it at the beginning of his seminars, like don't 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 believe anything I'd say. Um, you know, get in sense of he'd he'll be talking about some stuff that's pretty believable. Yeah. But he would he would expect people to question him, fact check him, you know, and, and don't take what he says as gospel and that's kind of the same thing that I kind of like to think as well. It's like, you know, I've I've got an opinion on some of this stuff and it's somewhat informed and maybe in some areas it's more informed than others and things like that. But there's always areas that we're missing. You don't realize, you know, it's the whole thing of the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. So there'll be, there'll be things where maybe I'll respond to questions now in a certain way. And then in a year's time, I'll go, Oh, actually I might have been wrong. You know, this is actually what I'm thinking about now. So it's, um, and I think that's cool. So when you have clients that ask questions, it's usually a good thing because it might, kind of promote a new way of thinking about something yeah. which can always be helpful yeah 100% but I guess we we'll get stuck right into today's episode and for that it's going to be kind of talking pretty much behind your own sort of philosophies or the muscle matters philosophies behind sort of programming and things that we should perhaps be looking out for that we don't and I, I can say that in the time that I've worked with Cal um, he's, he, he's opened my eyes to, be, to me being like oh okay my program was alright before but now it's more thought out and I, what what I wanted to do is just ask yourself, you know, with there being so many different training modalities of, you know, people preaching that this one's the best, that one's the best, this one's the best, you know, talk us through, like, 
if you had a philosophy on programming for yourself, your clients, now I'm not expecting this to be a, a, a short answer, but what, what would that be? And, you know, did it come about through, was it through your own research, trial and error application, or, or how was it founded? So, I mean, the, the it, kind of, it kind of, again, comes back to that thing of what, you know, I would, I would be um, hard-pressed to give some sort of, like, generic thing of, like, this is the best way to program. I know there's a lot of people out there that have their different, you know, their different programs that they sell or different styles of programming. And we're all aware of the things like GBT and G, or G, GVT, GBC, you know, well, that you know, German volume training, German body comp. Yeah. And then you get these, you know, the newer guy, you know, things in America of like AMPK training and, and, uh, you know, th- things where it's like, you know, people are, it's easy to sell, you know, and then that's the thing that I think a lot of people focus in on. But I mean, ultimately, um, my philosophy will come down to always who are we dealing with? What's the goal? You know, these are questions like, the, our teachings of exercise mechanics, um, and we re- reference this heavily in our educational portal online, which is kind of our the hub that we've created. That you know is an opportunity for coaches to kind of learn from us on that on that level. And we'll see, you'll see that we reference RTS, which is the Resistance Training Specialist Program, a lot within that, and they're a big influence on. They were essentially the the. Um, well, Michael Integra, who teaches RTS in the UK, it's obviously an American-based or American origin um, via Tom Purvis. Um, but Michael is like essentially the guy who taught a lot of us, well, pretty much all of us, um, and then we've kind of taken that influence and come up with our own way of thinking about stuff and applying it directly to physique development. Um, and and it's, so it's, it's, you know, we've always got to ask that question of whatever program you're designing, got to be relevant to the individual dealing with their goals what they you know these are questions that you'll ask in rt that they'll these five key questions that they'll ask in rts and ultimately that should be the basis for any kind of decision behind exercise you know who's who's the person you're dealing with what's their goal what do they have in terms of ranges available um even things like what do they have in terms of equipment available but what do they own in terms of, you know, they may have certain ranges, but are they actually able to take ownership of that? Um, are they confident in anything they're doing in the gym? You know, um, for instance, I can squat, but when you load me up with a bar on my back, it's hard for me to take full ownership of that and, and really perform to a high level. So that's an example of what that kind of means. And then, um, and then what can they tolerate? Um, and that should ultimately inform um how we go about program design in terms of the decisions we make and that will always underpin how i program um and then you get into understanding anatomy um and also, and then you know what tools someone has available um and i think that's the thing like when we do our practical camps the biggest area that exercise professionals fall short on which is interesting because if we're exercise professionals and our job is applying force to anatomy, trying to stimulate an, an adaptation within specific tissues and we don't know where that tissue attaches or what it actually does in various positions that we can take a limb into, for instance, you know, how can we really program efficiently? 
you know that and that's so that's a big thing um of understanding the human body on the level of how it varies from individual to individual the size of someone's rib cage the size you know the sternum angle um different points of insertion what that could mean in terms of how efficient a muscle could be um and then simple more simple things of like you know you look at the hamstrings for instance and their hip extensors and knee flexors and then you consider actually if i put the hip into abduction many of the hamstrings become adductors and internal rotators and so you know or you know looking at people on a abduction machine and they're trying to stimulate their glute med for whatever reason but if most adductor machines are in a position of hip flexion you know and, and that isn't actually going to get glute med to do anything you know in terms of the position that glute med is putting in when you go into hip flexion it becomes an internal rotator not an abductor and, and so when people are kind of you know going after that sort of thing you know they're, they're full you know they're programming exercises to hit certain muscles but they're failing to account for the fact that they don't truly understand anatomy, it kind of makes it somewhat inaccurate as to what they're trying to do or inefficient. So all this ramble <laughs> getting to is in terms of a philosophy on programming for myself, and my clients has definitely been trial and error um, and practice of understanding anatomy, but it comes down to someone has a goal there's no magic in any exercise um and that's again when you come down to like i said exercise mechanics is is basically what well, it is essentially maths and physics or you know math slash physics um yeah you can calculate pretty much everything that goes on if you're good enough at maths um and you break down exercise into all the components that go into it you know in terms of all the the different conditions um that ultimately dictate what that stimulus does and whether it's appropriate and you can go into you know essentially there's an equation that they come up with in rts of all the different things and you're looking at motion position resistance intention effort time frequency these are all kind of the the variables that go into what makes up exercise and there's no you know squats aren't magic bench press isn't magic no this isn't magic it just provides a stimulus for the tissues that may may or may not be involved yeah. and that might vary between individuals um so it's a case of understanding who you're dealing with understanding anatomy understanding how you can manipulate those variables to elicit the response you're after and and programming becomes a lot simpler it becomes a lot more there's probably a lot of people listening to this now going uh, yeah, what the fuck, mate? Like, <laughs> just yeah. give me a, give me a thing of yeah. You should train this many sets, this many reps. You know, this much. You know, this percentage of one rep max, whatever it is. We know that research is just completely all over the place there yeah. in terms of what it says people need. You know, and then we see it on a day to day basis with our clients. We're like, well, this person seems to respond really well to this amount of volume. But then this other guy didn't at all, you know. And, yeah. Oh, and then I can break down his how he's built. Maybe it's something to do with his lever lengths, and actually the other guy's getting a much better stimulus in that tissue that we're trying to grow. Or maybe there's something on a deeper level within his genetics that are dictating this whole thing, because that's again areas you can get into. Of, you know, the ability to drive muscle protein synthesis is an, is a genetic. It's a, it's a genetically driven process. You know, all the machinery within our cells 
the ribosomes, which essentially that where that whole process takes place, varies from individual to individual. I think someone is. I think that someone's a beginner that's just heard the word ribosome. His head <laughs> head has just exploded. I know. <laughs> so see, they're just the, the the factories in our cells um, that print out proteins, and, and you get a stimulus goes in, and there's certain chem, you know, signals that get sent. And I went through this all in one of the lectures on our portal and these ribosomes are essentially printing presses of proteins that print out amino acids and then it's all down to how well that process stimulates on a genetic level. Um, and you'll get people and then you look at, there's the freaks out there and the, and the not freaks and you know, all these things that go into what makes a Phil Heath and what makes someone who really struggles to build muscle comes down to some of those things, which you might never change, but then they're starting to see stuff from research where actually that could explain, you know, why some people respond better to certain rep ranges. And these, these are the things of if you want to, in the same way, if you're going to understand nutrition, you've got to understand, you know, like you get into the epigenetics and nutrition and things like that how food and things like, and things we put in our body can influence our genetics. Um, training's very similar. And as a, you know, when we get into the realms of program design, you what we're all, always ever doing is coming up with a hypothesis. Yeah. I think, you know, this person has a goal. Okay, I've thought of a way I could possibly get them there. I'm gonna write this plan, here's a program which is the experiment. Now we're going to run the experiment and we're going to see if it works. Like you should never really promise someone that you're going to get them to whatever thing they achieve. You, you, you might have the tools available that you could, and, and that's the day I spoke about this um, with Lucas Sheehan yesterday of, of, you know, the promise of people paying you, they're not paying you for you to guarantee it. They're paying you because you have the knowledge and they can trust that you have the tools available or, uh, you know, at least the humility to try different things and accept that you may get things wrong here and there. And, and, but everything you do should be informed with by yeah. some sort of professional, you know, science-based thing. Cause that's what we're doing. We're dealing with humans and we're trying to manipulate biology and by bio, their biochemistry and their physiologies in a way that, you know, is, is grounded in science. So we have kind of a duty to understand that to a degree. So I think when people go, oh, it's too complicated to learn about all the stuff involved in hypertrophy. So, but your job is hypertrophy. So why aren't you going in and geeking out of that? Yeah. Your job yeah. is understanding anatomy. So, you know, you're, you're applying a force to this person's skeleton. Should you not know about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, so I think, yeah, my philosophy is all over the place with programming. I was going to say, that was probably um, one of the most detailed answers to, to a question given. Yeah, but, I mean, but again, people are going to be like, well, what's the takeaway from that? The takeaway is, I could not give you a generic, this is how I program. I could give you a thought process of, I consider the individual, I consider how they're built, I consider what I know about exercise mechanics and when I'm designing a an exercise and this is stuff we can get into when we talk about volume all the things that affect that that volume equation what's felt by the neuromuscular system that's what we're trying to deal with we're trying to put a stimulus into the into the body so that the neuromuscular system responds in a way that it recruits muscle in a certain way and it has to work to a specific degree across the range 
and we can make it really hard for it. We can make it a bit easier for it at points, depending on what we want to do. Um, and that's where we get into tempo and resistance profiles relative to strength profiles. And what, you know, um, so you know, you've got the individual, how they're built, the kind of mechanical variables, what's appropriate for the individual in terms of their daily structure, because it's all well and good having a program that is apparently really good for hypertrophy, but if it takes someone two hours to do a session and they've got an hour to, to do that session, you've got a bit of a problem because you're dealing with an individual that might have a family, might have a job, and you've got to be able to say, actually, how can I create, how can I get that stimulus into those tissues in a more time efficient way? Do I want to go for high volume or are there ways, you know, I know train to failure isn't the best thing maybe according to research, but it still works. And when we train to failure, we seem to need less volume and this person is time pressured Maybe I'm gonna to have to get them to push to fade it, but they're a beginner. So getting them to that point is gonna be quite hard, especially if you're in an online perspective. So then you have to kind of understand how you design that program in terms of getting them to that point. You know, you wouldn't expect someone to be able to train to failure and they wouldn't be able to, um, you know, straight away. So, you know, it's like building them up to that point and structuring things in a, in a progressive manner that might not look, that might look slightly different to what people would normally look at in terms of progression. People look at just sets and reps, but it might be, you know, we look at what goes into mechanical tension and that the people quite, I've, I've heard mechanical tension before being defined as the weight on the bar. <laughs> like mechanical tension's a, a phenomenon that occurs within a in the cell, in a muscle fiber, in terms of the proteins that interact within that fiber to create force to like essentially shorten that tissue um acting and myosin cross bridging again for those that want to geek out on that stuff and actually understand why it's relevant we've i've done that lecture on our website on our website on our education portal but that the things that go into mechanical tension because we can make it harder for those proteins to interact by adding an external load and that's one component of it and, and the, the overall equation of it is you'd look at external load on a tissue and then internal force generation. So how much force is the tissue actually generating? And, um, and then fatigue, because we know when you fatigue a tissue, it, it, it kind of makes it harder for those things, those proteins to interact, yeah. which actually kind of augments their ability to produce mechanical tension so it's all those factors that go in and then you think okay how does that inform my programming cool for these beginners i might not get be getting because they've got to learn the skill of being able to control the, their body and some of these movements actually contract the muscle from start to finish i can get them i can drive that whole equation up in terms of how much mechanical tension they're producing without focusing on external load for the first few weeks it could just be focusing on every time you go in you're going to try and contract harder and harder and harder um, and it becomes a more relevant form of progression for them that then gets them used to actually, shit, this gets really hard and that might get them closer to experiencing that whole thing of training to failure, which will be beneficial for anybody who's in this game. But then it comes down to, again, like you go back to the whole things of core underlying principles in the program. Who are, who are you dealing with? What's their goal? What have they got available? What can they tolerate all these things? Quite often people can't tolerate or control um, 
sticking a barbell on their back and expecting them to push really hard. They've only ever trained for a short period of time. Or they're later in a session and they can't, you know, they're very fatigued and you you expect potentially higher levels of injury risk at that point. You know, all these things that that go into how you instruct the sessions. But um, there's a, I wrote an e-book over lockdown which if we get locked down again might might make a resurgence um but it was about how we can train at home efficiently and obviously where we're lacking that ability to progress external load we can still drive that whole equation up by getting people to increase the intensity with which they contract their muscles and there was a cool study they did where they had a group who um they basically had it they called it no load resistance training and they had a group that trained with no resistance so they were just doing the motion of a bicep curl but contracting their their muscles as hard as they possibly could without any resistance and then a group that trained with pretty heavy load for like three sets of eight to twelve and then the no load resistance group did four sets of 20 reps they kind of used bfr conditions and they both built the same amount of tissue they were beginners so there's a lot of people that that um you know will be like Oh, but they're beginners. You're like, well, most of the time we're dealing with beginners. I also tried it, and it was the hardest type of training I've ever done. <laughs> um, I was like, oh my god! Like, I looked at the thing, and they and they seemed to rate it. The group that did no load rated it way harder in terms of an RPE. Right. Um, and I was like, that's, that's interesting. I'm going to try it. And I've got to like 12 reps, and I, I was tanked. <laughs> and um, and I, but you know, the the obviously the difference there is as where I am in my training, was, I was probably doing a better job at contracting the muscles, but, but the, but those things if they built tissue doing that and there was that internal, you know, they were creating tension and, and, in, and the kind of, there was an interaction between those proteins that create mechanical tension, which converts into the, me- the chemical signals to drive hypertrophy. And that's the thing, but there's all these things that go into how we can get people to think about exercise, what we think about what was occurring during those those sets of they were technically de- they were, were contracting their biceps so hard and anyone who's doing who's watching this now listening to this like take your arm into 90 degrees of elbow flexion so where you'd be like the mid-range of a bicep curl and imagine you're holding 300 kilos and contract your biceps as hard as you can and you should feel your tricep kick in mm-hmm. and the, the idea there is or that what's actually happening there is your triceps kicking in to stop your bicep from ripping your radius off the front of your body. Um, and, um, you know, essentially ripping it superiorly out of the joint. And the so you, you it's not a no-load condition, it's a internally loaded condition. Yeah. And But they, those are all tools that you can use within programming. There's a reason why bodybuilders potentially grow quite heavily into preps and obviously you've got to consider like the anabolic aspect and things like that but you know when bodybuilders are practicing posing and they're trying to tense muscles as hard as possibly can for you know quite a lot of time on end in between sessions they're essentially doing another training session in terms of the stimulus they're giving those tissues so you can think okay you know what what how, how can i use that within programs is there a way i could you know, take away some of the volume that people are having in sessions and replace it with some of that stuff, it would be pretty good for getting them to learn how to recruit that tissue, which would then carry on, carry back over to what they're doing when they add external load. I, I pretty much think what, what you've 
what you've said, you've answered like nearly every single que- every single question on the list. But the, uh, we can go into more. But, but the thing is that there is no, and there shouldn't be a definitive. This is no. how you should train, and if you do train uh, any, anywhere from this method, it's bad. Uh, like, yeah. the, the detail that you've just went into of all the different considerations, uh, it, I mean, it, I sit here and go, fuck man, that's that's detail. So I can only imagine if so, if someone who, that isn't into programming uh, doesn't understand it, would, would at the same time be like, shit, this is about more than just... Oh wow! Let's just go buy that chest builder. You know, hey bro, I'm selling an eight week chest you know building plan. I'm gonna buy that when when in fact actually it might work, but at the same time it might not work for the next person that buys it because of everything you just said. I'm not gonna summarize yeah. it. I'll just say go back yeah. to, the, to the start and hit boom, hit play because yeah. yeah, I mean people might have listened to that three or four times. So I went off on so many bloody tangents there, but the um. <laughs> yeah, it's it's literally you you know, the, and it's one of the problems with reading research in hypertrophy and, and taking lessons from papers where they're like, oh, we looked at this, we looked at this cohort of 30, 30 people, and and they seem to respond really, you know, that we compared these two conditions and actually this one came out better. And you're like, okay, that's great. Was I in the study? Yeah. No. Was my client in the study? No. Did, did they talk about any of the mechanical considerations? No, because they rarely do. How were those people built? Oh, they didn't say. So they, I, got, I don't know when they're comparing squats, what was the femur length? So for the group that responded really well, did it happen to be the case that they were built in a way they had longer femurs, maybe whatever, and, and actually they were measuring glute hypertrophy and on average that group had a, had a bigger moment arm to their hips so their glutes got you know, slightly more stimulus. And actually that was the reason why they grew nothing to do with the reps or, or the way they structured the program. And these are all the things when you're reading this stuff and, and people are like, oh, I'm evidence-based. I read this study and that now informs how I program. You're like, well, you're, you're, you're basing Luke, how you work. With other... <laughs> this is the first pickles of beans on the podcast. Sorry, she just ran in. Like, oh, yeah, no, that's just throwing me. Where was I? I love cats. I don't know if people realise I've got cat stickers all over this laptop. I've also got cat tattoos all over me. Um, but the, um, but yeah, so yeah, people take things from research and they, and they think you know to a degree you've got to take the relevant lessons. And there's things you I'm not saying disregard research, but there's certain things you've always got to take with a pinch of salt. And if you're going to take research that was done maybe quite sketchy they didn't account for key things relative between you know between individuals and then apply that to how you work with every individual that comes through your door you're kind of missing the point that that individual you're working with wasn't in that study and it might not work out well for them and that's all it is we should never have a definitive answer the the ex the whole thing of being a scientist or using that come up with a hypothesis run the experiment do the assessments which is what we do with check-ins and and uh, as coaches and stuff, you know, if you, if you don't do check-ins, you know, there's a lot of PTs out there that don't do check-ins, it would still be a good thing because you're essentially assessing whether the plan is working. Um, and then if it's not working, you can start changing some of those variables and say, okay, well, maybe I need to put volume a bit higher, maybe it needs to be a bit lower, maybe it needs to be something to do with the intensity they're pushing at. Maybe they're mechanically not suited some of these things and I need to start learning a bit more about anatomy and how joints work and all um, these things. I, I find it is quite interesting to see and if I use I've got a couple of female clients in particular, like if I look at 
I, I'll be honest. I, the detail that you go into in mechanics, I, I'm not as well versed. And I will say, if you want to learn about mechanics, go see those guys. But in regards to volume, seeing like, okay, well, that female, you know, her glutes are growing off of only X amount of sets across the week, whereas this one needs at least another five more. And they train just as hard. And mm. you see them giving it the beans, right, on every single set that they do. But... I like that. I find that fascinating. How we can say, right? You know what? I'm going to add an extra two or three sets here. You wait. You give it a few weeks, and you go, oh whoa, we've actually seen a bit more tissue there. Your logbook's progressing. Your recovery is fine. Bob's uncle finds around. We're all good. And that that for me is something that I probably didn't do until like last year. I would just be like, yeah, you cool. This is what you do. But whereas, I think working with you guys, come come to your camps and whatnot, and working with Cal. It's made me a better coach, and I think that for sure all the all the coaches that are on your platform will one hundred percent be thinking the same. Um, not even just your platform, the people that follow your your content on Instagram and every, I'm sure you've done hundreds of podcasts that listen to them uh, will will think the same. But right. if if I, we were to kind of continue into or uh, dig the hole, I should say, in today's episode, and we were to speak specifically about how we program for a male and how we program for a female, taking We've taken everything you said in consideration, but there's a there's an, an analogy out there that I think that might be misunderstood or misconstrued that programming needs to be different, and it's because you know females will perhaps recover a bit quicker. Um, at the same time, I think they need to take consideration that as a guy, I want a massively jacked chest. Not a lot of females do either want a jacked chest, and I want an okay sized butt. But a lot of females want a massive butt, so that's gonna that's gonna dictate program. But if you think from like a, a sort of physiolo- physiology perspective, should they be different in regards to how quickly that we can recover or not, or do you feel like it's not it's not relevant? Females to males. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the evidence does point to the fact that females will recover quicker, and I, I again I'm not probably as well versed as I should be on those mechanisms um, because again like all those you know I look at those things I'm like ultimately these studies are giving us an average of yeah. the, you know if this particular group they seem to recover better okay great but I've come across you know you just said uh, we, we've all come across females and that doesn't apply to so you're like how you know it's, you know it's hard to it's hard to give it so much weight but the and then you get into what actually constitutes volume and what recovery and like I was having we brought this up over the weekend and I was talking about this with a, a colleague the other day. Um, but the yeah, I mean the evidence does suggest that that's the case and, and as far as I'm aware it's to do with the fact that females have a slightly different recruitment pattern and then they'll in terms of how they recruit muscle tissue and they will go about it in a slightly different way that potentially is then uh, their neuromuscular system is maybe smarter about getting them how it gets them to the same point of failure and it might and it's, it's ultimately if you took a female and a male to failure it should be the same result in terms of how how much how many high threshold motor units they've recruited how many um uh you know in terms of the the types of muscle fibers and, and the stimulation that tissue's got and the level of oxygen left in the tissue and all these things but you know it seems female it happens slightly differently in females um and again there's probably better that better people to talk about that but um but again it comes down to what you know you know we're having this 
debate, you can have two females that recover very similar uh, or very similarly in terms of, you know, they can tolerate similar amounts of volume um, or maybe it's to do with how they did the study. You know, again, I haven't read enough of those studies. They usually account for that sort of thing. But quite often in some studies, they'll just say, oh, we got females and males to do this program and they went away to their gyms or whatever and then we had like check-ins, you know, they came into the lab and we took measurements at certain time points in the study and whatever it is. And, and you know, we go into how were those sessions overseen in terms of the tempos they used, the machines they used, how how's that volume look? And when you consider reps times sets times load, is that the equation that people usually do to calculate volume? But the load part of that equation is always a moving target when you break in, you know, you break down what's involved from a, you had, let's say you have two leg extensions. I use this example because it's an easy one. And you've got a leg extension that alters the magnitude of the load as it goes through the rep. Um, and then a leg extension that doesn't. So you've got a leg extension where at the top at the bottom of the movement, maybe it's harder in terms of you're dealing with more load. And then as you go through, it has a certain shape on the cam that means there's less load at the top. Um, just on those conditions, you could, if you had 100 kilos on both throughout the range, technically the neuromuscular system is being exposed to a different level of volume. And then you factor in how fast someone moves it. So you then go, this person does it with really fast tempo. Um, Maybe they're on the same leg extension. They've both, they've both got one that, you know, like a prime leg extension, let's say, plate loaded, there's a big lever in terms of the distance, that load to the axis is massive. So there's a lot of rotation and inertia that the weight that's traveling around that axis, if you move it with enough speed, wants to continue moving because that's how physics works. That's Newton's first law, the law of inertia. Um, and, you know, so you've got one person who's doing it really slowly and they're getting a point, maybe 30% drop off and load at the top. So you're like, okay, I can kind of standardize that. And then the other person's throwing it up. You know, they've got the same load, same machine, but a lot more, you know, a lot higher inertial effects, which is then changing what the resistance they're actually dealing with. Yeah. You know, oh, on paper, the volume should be this, but that, that person's neuromuscular system is experiencing something way different to that person's. And then, so it makes that quite hard. And then you go, you know, in terms of you could have someone who's doing three sets on a machine, set one looks a certain way, they've got control, then by set three, they're really fatigued and they're starting to use more, you know, you know, in terms of use more speed, there's more kind of impulse being put into the reps as they go through and there's higher inertial effects and it's completely changing the exercise when we come back to those variables we discussed of what goes into that equation of what makes up exercise according to RTS. Um, you know, those are completely different. So you're like, you know, if you if you have these studies that are looking at these things with males and females, they're not accounting for things like that, which we could only assume. Um, so an assumption is, is nothing more than an assumption, so we can't give it too much weight. But it makes it hard to then generalise. And then similarly, when we're seeing, dealing with clients in the gym, um, and they've got certain access to certain machines and we're not aware of those those things that they may be dealing with. Um, you know, for instance, you know, I've got this client that is, I've given her this program and she's responded really well. This person's got this, I gave her pretty much the same one. She's responding really differently, but maybe I haven't paid 
close enough attention to how they're executing it, how they're built as, a, as an individual, but then also the machines they've got. You've got someone with a prime leg extension where rotational inertia is a much bigger consideration versus like a, a machine like a Cybex leg extension with a cam in it. And there'll still be inertial considerations that will, you have to take into account, but there'll be far less. So it's all the, you know, for instance, you might have to program two completely different tempos, the prime leg extension, you might be, you're going to have to do this with a four second down, four second up tempo, because we've got to really control for that inertia. Um, and then you get this person on the side backs and you think, no, they can probably get away with going three seconds down, two seconds up. You know, it's like, the, the and then it's like, okay, you know, these, these are the things that go into then. See in that instance when you talk about studies, would you say yeah. then that a lot of studies are, I'm not going to say they're irrelevant, but there's a lot of holes in them that I'm sure you, that the only way to really see if they're deemed they're worthy is in practice, right? Yeah. But what I would also say is, do you not see there's a massive hole in research that you personally could go into and explain on, why they should be doing X, Y, and Z. Well, that's it. There's so many studies out there that, you know, they get given so much weight. And then, you know, you, you re, you, you'd start learning about mechanics. You're like, oh, but they didn't account for this person's limb length. They didn't account for how quickly they were doing the rep. They didn't account for the size. You know, they're looking at bench press, and you're like, well, they didn't account for the size of this person's rib cage, the size of you know, the length of their... Um, radius and ulna in terms of you know the, the size of their sternum angles of their you know or the, the steepness of their sternum angle like all these factors you're like they massively dictate someone's efficiency on a bench press and you look at there's a reason why powerlifters for instance or top level powerlifters are as good as they are because typically they're all built in a certain way so you get someone who reads research they say this was the proper range of motion that we we found for the bench press or like we looked at this group and on average of that group, this seemed to be the range that was best in terms of they touched the basket, their chest, whatever it is. Um, and, and then you go, yeah, but I've got this client here who's built like a twig and he's got really long arms and he's got a really flat rib cage and so it's very shallow. So for him to touch his chest, he's going to have to go through twice the range, get his shoulders into a way more compromised position into a position where we know the pec will lose a lot of efficiency in terms of its ability to actually pull the humerus back around. And you're like, yeah, it makes it really difficult, you know. Then And then you go, if they account for that stuff, maybe these results would come out so much differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when they're looking at these these individual differences in terms of how people respond to squats and hip thrusts and deadlifts or whatever it is for glute growth, and you're like, well, yeah, well, look, the, the hip thrust came off better here because you're kind of guaranteed to get a good stimulus no matter how you're built. And then you look at the, the squat or something like that. And you think there's so much more mechanically that goes into how efficient that stimulus is for someone's group development that is it a fair comparison if you don't account for those those differences. So yeah. and then that informs how people program and you're like, well, you, you missed that they... Do you think, do you think that there ever, is ever going to be a study that takes all that into account though, unless it's you that designs they, it? They're starting... It's so difficult. That's the problem, and it and it may you know that's where I would never get snobbish and be like oh, I'll never read research. I like to read research, and I think you can still learn a lot from it. You just got to inform what you look for and what you give weight for. And I'll go through studies and I'll make quite a lot of notes on 
oh look they didn't account for such and such so be careful when I look at the conclusion um, you know and and yeah so I think and, and there's, there are some and they're starting to do more but again it, it would be so difficult and you would it would make I, I say it would be difficult it would be interesting if, so, if someone did do, start to do studies like that if they were looking at the effects of a particular exercise and they accounted for how someone's structure influenced that and, and then how they program the stimulus so they how they got them to perform it and all these different things um, it could be done but it would be it would be more time consuming and those studies are already expensive and time consuming as they are yeah. so when they started getting the sign up for it but again it's it's stuff we still get to see in practice and, and it, that's where you know when people are, are kind of privileged enough to be in a position to be personal training still because that is the, the, the benefit that you gain as a personal trainer or an online coach is if you understand this stuff, you have the ability to be more accurate with what you're doing. Um, the, you, you, can, you can start doing the experiments yourself. You, know, you have a, access to a, you know, a, a cohort in, in and of yourself and in terms of the client base you're dealing with. Um, and they're all going to be built differently. Yeah. And you can figure out the way that they can, you know, for each one of those individuals, what does a, a bench press actually need to look like in terms of optimal stimulation of the pec and safety of their glenohumeral joint? What does a, a leg press have to look like if we want an actual decent quad stimulus? What you know, there's, it should all look very different. It's not as simple as put your feet low and knees together, or touched about to your chest or you know, all these cues to get thrown about just because someone said it a while ago and it seemed to work for them or you see it's like a case of you got Ben Bukowski who's built like an absolute monster um, and, and he's you know he can squat in, a, in an amazing way and leg press in a certain way and people say oh look at his quads you know I want quads like Ben so I'll do what he does, you know, yeah, but that's Ben. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, Ben has the thickest rib cage ever. So when he does pressing movements, he, you know, his chest is in such an efficient position. There's a reason why his chest is so big. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, because that stimulus is just so optimal for how he's built. And then you get someone who's built with a very small rib cage, you know, well, their program needs to look completely different in terms of the exercises I choose, the, the way I set them up. Um, the tempos I, cho I choose in terms of how I get someone to execute them and, you know, how far I take those sets in terms of, you know, depending on that person's skill level, all those things of train to failure is, you know, potentially very reckless advice for certain people and potentially very appropriate for others. And it all just depends on where you are in your journey, yeah. which is again, like what I'm coming back to, of, you know, it's a, a thought process of, if you're gonna be start learning how to program, you, you've got to learn all these variables. In my opinion, learn all these variables and learn about anatomy and learn the exercise mechanics and 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 recognise each individual that comes through your door and and go, okay, how does this have to look for them? But then also recognise that as like an online coach, and that's one of the things you know, I reckon you know I have to deal with. You can't be as accurate. So when you've got someone who's sending you videos. And, and they've got their phone at a, a kind of an angle and you can see their intensity you're like oh yeah you know you need to push harder but you're failing to account for the fact that if you were there you would see 
all this funky stuff happening around their hips when they're doing that seated leg curl and you know they've you know their their femurs are being further apart because they can't hold that position of internal rotation that might be needed to keep their plane of movement in line with that plane of movement of the machine and they're starting to anteriorly tilt their pelvis because their nervous system's trying to put length into their hamstrings so their spine's moving about when they're doing it and you're like oh yeah you need to push to failure and they're like okay i'll push harder unknowingly aware of the fact that they've compromised the plane that they're moving in and so their knees might start taking a massive hit and they start driving the intensity up because you're not there to kind of oversee oh look his hips massively changed so now his knee is dealing with force in a really quite dangerous way in the sense of not in that moment maybe but if it's someone who's had previous knee issues they can't tolerate force going through it in a certain way my mum for instance had her she ruptured her acl mcl tore a cartilage in her knee years ago um and then they grafted her semi one of her semi tendinosis or semi membranosis it was it was one of those muscles to repair it and so they so she lost you know the fact that her medial collateral ligament is a key medial support to the knee acl technically also because it's fused with the medial meniscus and then you have one of both semi membranosis and tendinosis attached immediately to the knee and they took from one of those tissues to repair it so they compromised one of the last intact structures that was there in her knee to rebuild the others so her knee she can't tolerate pretty much anything that puts too much medium like stress on those medial structures in her knee so when she's pushing quite hard in a second she trains i want to be really aware of like ryan pts her so ryan has to be so much very aware of how how you know what's happening around those joints but and and you know if you're dealing with someone online who's had that issue they've come to you with a an issue around a particular joint and you can't take that into account you, you well you can take it into account but you have to be very specific about how you communicate with that client in terms of when you're filming this exercise put the camera here because i yeah. need to see what's going on at this point um and look beyond just intensity because that's a lot of things that coaches are guilty of from an online perspective of they kind of flick through videos and they're like, yeah, the intensity could be better, push harder, but they're not counting for the fact that if they tell them to push harder, stuff could go wrong in terms of the stimulus that they're receiving is a stimulus for their entire anatomy, not just the muscles. Yeah. So you've got to think joints, ligaments. I, I know we went off on a tangent there, but I think it was a very good one. But, but I don't, <laughs> I'm aware of time and I wanted to just... Uh, I know that some. I know that some of the listeners will be dying to hear your thoughts on it. Um, the low volume, high volume approach is something that I I've asked quite a few guests on the, the podcast because I always like to hear their different opinions. I know what work, I know what I like and what works for me, but some people prefer it differently. So, you know, would you say that does it all boil down to to preference? I, I know that you know Cal super low volume and responds very very well for his physique. But it might be different from person to person. So, just wanted to hear you kind of your thoughts on why low volume would maybe be be good. Maybe a reference to to James's old man knees here, because um, I know he often says, and this is on the podcast that you know I still want to be doing this when I'm 40, yeah. 50, 60 years old, and I'm sure if I was to train with a certain amount of volume, my knees would maybe or any other joint maybe would take it. So, what, what's your thoughts on it? So that's an interesting one because again, this is an area that comes back to what is volume. Oh, okay, yeah, I get you. And, and uh, you know, what? How efficient is that volume? 
and that's where be, we'll get into a geeky bit in a sec. But like, just for some people, people for some people to think about now is, let's say I'm doing a dumbbell lateral raise, and I've got one person doing ten kilos, super slow, total control, very minimal inertia effects in terms of bearing control of where that dumbbell wants to travel, and they're not letting you know that the speed at which they're moving dictate the load essentially as we and then you have someone so the stimulus that the, the delts receiving might not be optimal for those that understand strength and resistance profiles but the you know the stimulus is pretty that should be relatively hard versus someone who's got 20 30 kilos and they're just launching that thing up or even keep it as 10 kilos and they're launching that thing up and down they both do three sets of 10 is the volume the same? No. Yeah, um, okay. I mean, some, if someone said, yeah, the volume's the same, I'd be like, hopefully I wasn't that kind of um, hard to understand at the beginning in terms of stuff I was speaking about. But the, uh, it, you should agree that the stimulus that the neuromuscular system is going to receive is going to be vastly different, and that's ultimately what you're dealing with, because it's the stimulus. It's like, how hard is that is the neuromuscular system having to work to deal with the resistance you're applying? To the body, which is creating a certain amount of mechanical tension, which will convert into this this chemical signal to drive hypertrophy. You know, in one scenario, there you, you'd have a person who's pushing, you probably creating way more efficient signal, and the other person who's not, and they're putting a lot of stress on joints and and connective tissues and things like that. Um, because I we I had this chat with a friend the other day of you you know let's say you did an entire session with with that sort of premise of someone completely in control, someone who's not really thinking about tempo and they're launching weights around left, right and centre, we know they still push around really hard and they still have to recover. But you, you could say that for someone who's pushing really hard and they're minimising inertial effects and actually creating a stimulus within the active components of muscle tissue, which are the ones that actually grow, the, the neuromuscular system is going to be the thing that has to recover the contractile proteins, cross bridging matrices, all those things. Versus the other scenario where they'll still have to do a lot of recovery and then probably the, 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 the level in terms of where that recovery is being directed for the people that are less in control and they're dealing with a lot of inertia and being pulled into compromised joint positions. A lot of that recovery is probably going to be devoted to their connective tissues as opposed to the things that actually want to drop in the growth. The scenario that I'm gonna, I'm planning because I need to. I've figured out a way I can represent it kind of graphically, of you know, because we know high volume, low volume works. And I think when once you get the concept I've kind of got in my head down and nailed, then that starts becoming relevant because you account for all these other variables that could change what that volume looks like. But if you have someone who for instance, it comes back to that leg extension style. So let's say we get into strength and resistance profiles in terms of the strength profile being a graphical representation. And this is quoted from RTS 2001. Like if anyone uses the term strength profile, resistance profile, you are quoting Tom Purvis, whether you know it or not, those are his concepts. And then the strength profile is a a graphical representation of where a muscle is weakest and strongest in a, in a particular range. And resistance profile is a graphical representation of where an exercise is hardest or easiest in a particular range. And where, you know, you don't always have to get those to match. But if we can kind of get those to sync up 
more or less, it means that the tissue being stimulated is going to be having to work as hard as it possibly can across a given range. People have like the prime pieces, they can load different points, thinking they're overloading a short range and a, and a lengthened range and a mid range. Like that, we, we, the whole concept of overloading a particular part of the range is a bit of a misunderstanding because you don't overload any part of it. If you can handle, if you'd load a prime leg extension so you can only handle, you know, to, to, the, to the max load you can handle in the shortened position. So it's getting heavier as you go through the movement, which is the weakest position. Typically a muscle is going to be actively weakest in its, in its shortest position. Let's say you can handle 100 kilos there max. Um, doesn't matter how else you load that, if you loaded it so it kind of actually matched what you were capable of doing. So it was heavier at the beginning and then it dropped off as you went through. Um, and we go into the intricacies of that on our site, so we don't need to go too much into it now. But if you were going to match up a leg extension as an example, we'll keep using that as an example because it's an easy one. Um, to you know, In terms of our output relative to where an exercise is hardest and easiest, it would look harder at the beginning and easier as we got into the short position. But it shouldn't be turned easier because if you could only handle 100 kilos there, you would still end up with 100 kilos at the top if you loaded it optimally, yeah. but you'd maybe have 150 at the bottom. Yeah. But in this scenario where you loaded it to get heavier, you load it to the point where you can still, you're still dealing with 100 kilos at the top, but throughout the first part of the range, you just under under stimulated the tissue. So it's kind of your you're creating more work when there doesn't need to be. So, but in terms of how you how fatigue affects the whole thing, if you loaded it so you got heavier there at the top of the leg extension, you would still fatigue your ability to work throughout the other parts of the range. So you wouldn't leave those untapped. So you're just basically creating an inefficient challenge and fatiguing yourself unnecessarily. Um, so it comes into if we have this 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 kind of view of programming and we said like if we were going to plot that as sort of a, a difficulty profile if we have that scenario of a leg extension where we've kind of matched it more or less in terms of our force output capabilities at the bottom relative to the top and that would differ between individuals in terms of how much weaker we are at the top relative to the bottom but we could kind of match it roughly and we say okay you know that person you know, and you could get into the how you design reps and be like actually I could get that pretty pinpoint um based on and you'd base that off maybe the last rep of the set if someone can get to the point of the last rep where there's no real sticking point but it takes them like 20 seconds to do probably match the profile relative work because you're having to work so damn hard throughout the entire range there's no point that's harder or easier it's just all really challenging and that's what you're aiming for you'd kind of plot that there's like a difficulty profile where the difficulty is pretty consistently high throughout the entire range versus the the profile of it's getting easy it's getting harder as i go into short position but i'm under challenging the rest of the range the difficulty of that movement might be really low and then it just picks up right at the end so across that range of how hard can I make this tissue work you could have 100 kilos on both leg extensions um, in terms of let's say it comes back to that example we used at the beginning but in one scenario the nervous system the neuromuscular system is actually having to do way more work um, across that range than the other so the volume looks completely different so if we're going to approach the volume debate with that in mind and we're going to say 
I haven't accounted for that, so I don't know what this person's machine is. I don't know how fast they're moving it. I don't know what the overall difficulty of that movement is relative to what the neuromuscular system is, is um, what's being demanded in the neuromuscular system. You're kind of like, well, it kind of becomes, it's a bit of a moot point to argue higher versus lower volume because you could have someone do two sets really well with a, with a really efficient, you know, difficulty profile, we could say, so the stimulus is very efficient from start to finish. And then have someone do 10 sets really badly. Um, but the volume in terms of what's felt by the neuromuscular system could be identical. Yeah. In terms of, you know, and, and that's where I think that comes in. So you get people now kind of going into doing, I think it's making quite a big comeback with people doing really high volume. And you see it, they can't train to failure because you can't when you go that high. So they can't really demand too much of the neuromuscular system across that thing. So they have to go for these kind of inefficient challenges. And if you start getting into, uh, like I have a friend who you probably know, um, and James has done some of his programming. And I was talking with James and he, he said, oh, he's, yeah, he's, I think he's doing really, really, really high volume again in this block. And I said, well, if you, because James didn't advise on the last block, but he has advised on this new one. And I said, well, if you get the, the the advice right in terms of choice of exercise tempo and you make it so he's actually working harder in those sets there's no way he could tolerate the same amount of volume <laughs> because because he'd get the same stimulus maybe across the third two or three sets as opposed to what we previously had taken 10 or eight yeah. you know something like that so it comes down to all those variables of what goes in to make to the to the load you're dealing with that exercise how you know the the stimulus is being felt and once that's accounted for then you can go okay this person's been doing three sets and they're getting x amount of progress let's see what happens if we keep if we bump it to four or five yeah. or or we you know they're doing 10 sets across a week and they're all in terms of the exercises we've chosen, they might all have different profiles, but in terms of what's been demanded the tissue across this week, it's pretty damn high. If I add volume to this person's, to what's going on here, I've got to make sure that all those other variables stay consistent so that I don't start seeing all that, the, the efficiency we've created drop off. So that's when you get into, now we'll see what the effect of high volume has on this individual because we've accounted for the fact that these what goes into that volume is, is going to stay relatively consistent. What, what I like about today's episode is that you haven't given a definitive answer for any question. It's great. It's, it's so in detail of, it's not, it's not that you're, you're avoiding answering. You, I think that there's no definitive in yeah. the, the realms of programming. And that's exactly why I want to get you on and chat about it because of the detail that you guys got in the programming. But now would seem a good time for someone that's listening. It's been like, whoa, that is fucking amazing. I want to know more. Can you just say where they can kind of get in contact with yourself? Can they join the education portal, etc., etc.? Maybe maybe discuss some upcoming camps you've got, um, so they can get in touch. Yeah, so we're. I mean, we're all on Instagram. There's our names just underscore the muscle mentors. So we've got Luke underscore the muscle mentors. Cal, I think he's just Cal, but one L, and then James, um, Ryan, and Alex. Um, and James and I kind of lead the education side and, and for those that want to geek out more stuff like this it's, 
and, and you know, whether you're a coach or not, you might find it interesting, but we've got a, an educational website which I read, referenced called the uh, Muscle Mentors Education Portal. Um, and that's our, that's literally just gone www.muscleandmentors.co.uk. Um, and that's where we've gone into this stuff. And it, there'll be people that maybe think, oh, that's overkill, or that's really freaked me out. And it should freak you out if you're a coach in terms of, and that, that's what I would I would hope if the sense of if you listen to this stuff, if you disregard it, I would go as far as to say you're being a bit negligent because this stuff is almost impossible to argue. Well, I'd say it is impossible to argue with because it's maths. Yeah. Um, but um, but if you consider a university degree, for instance, you wouldn't do one lesson, one lecture, and go, "Yeah, I get it." You would go, "Wow." That was interesting. Lucky I've got three years to actually master this thing. Yeah. Um, and and that's how long it takes. Like I started studying exercise mechanics, fortunately, right at the beginning of my PT journey, but that was five, six years ago. Um, it's in the scheme of things, it's not very long. But then being exposed to it that early on, it's taken me, took me four years to pluck up the courage to start teaching it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um and it, and it takes that long to master you can't you, you start studying this stuff and you hear people talking about these concepts that are challenging the ways you've been thinking about things for ages and the ways that the majority think about stuff um and it's easy to fall into the camp of oh if, you know if it ain't broke don't fix it you know don't try and reinvent the wheel yeah. but in the realms of science that's what happens all the time and it would be a bit negligent to disregard it um so that's the thing i would i would kind of recommend that people do if, if they, this is the first kind of stuff they've heard on it, I would probably um, think about expa- you know, exploring that further because it will help you. There's, there's, it will be confusing for a while and then it will become clear and you'll be like, oh, right, I can see how this applies. Because it took me a long time to figure out all the stuff I've just spoken about. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what we're doing for people. If, if, you know, all the mistakes we've made and the realizations we've made that have taken that occurred over years and years and years, you know, collectively between us, there's probably nearly 30 years of experience. Um, and it's kind of collating all that information and the mistakes and the lessons and the realizations and giving it to coaches on a platform that's, you know, that make it, you know, able to make them better at what they do. Which yeah. Is basically- and for, for anyone listening, I couldn't recommend you guys enough. I mean, it was still, I still remember three years ago, I think it was 2017, uh, I had a, I had a session with James and I remember like coming off the pendulum after a top set and then like quizzing him on. I was like, right, this is what I think a moment arm, my moment arm is. Is this when this happens? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, right, okay. But at the time I was still a bit like, I, I, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what's going on. And it, it took some time, but... Um, yeah, so anyway, it is, yeah if, if people are good at non-verbal reasoning i always use that as an example of when we're in school and you're doing the 11 plus um and and you've got verbal non-verbal reasoning and maths and it's all to do with shapes that's basically what you've got to be good at when you cut looking into forces and you're in a gym and you're watching someone do a dumbbell and you're kind of envisioning where the line of force is going relative to the joints and you're drawing this kind of 2d image in your head and it takes a while to to go to go yeah like to get it down and um but once you do it kind of makes everything better and, and it can, you know, there's still people that butcher it. <laughs> like there's probably maybe some people that listen to stuff we say and they go, oh, you've got that completely wrong. And maybe, you know, in 
you know we'll realize that at some point as well um but you know that's just where it's just all about kind of constructive you know constructive learning constructive feedback and helping everyone out and but uh, you know yeah there, there'll be people that hopefully benefit from what we do and there seem to be so it's uh it's cool and we appreciate the support sir yeah 100 percent. and i think I always say to anyone that comes to me that, that asks about this and the next thing I'll have on because you go into this more detail, I'm like, I can, but really, realistically, if you want to know this stuff, I just send them, send them you guys away um, because I couldn't recommend you highly enough. So just a massive thank you for, for myself, from the listeners, for what you guys do on the daily. Um, I think, you know, we all, I'll, I speak for us all and say we massively appreciate it. But um, I think if I was to say, you know, or if I speak for both me and you, to listeners, I think we would say that Wherever you are, wherever you do, give it the beans.